What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hi, I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is San Jose, California. Located on the southern shore of the San Francisco Bay, San Jose is the cultural, financial, and political center of the Silicon Valley, home of California's tech industry, with more than 6,600 tech companies headquartered there. It should come as no surprise that San Jose is one of the wealthiest cities in the world, with the third highest gross domestic product per capita behind Zurich and Oslo. San Jose is also the home to the Winchester Mystery House, which is a must-see for every visitor. It frequently appears on the list of the most haunted places in the world. The house was originally owned by Sarah Winchester, heiress to the Winchester Gun Fortune, and was built after she said she received a message from her deceased husband telling her to build a place where the dead could find peace. But in 1980, the family of an heir to a business fortune did not find peace until the real killer was brought to justice. Kath, before we start our episode, I know we wanted to do a shout out to a few of our listeners who just graduated from college this past weekend. Mm-hmm. So we want to give a shout out to Claire, Connor, Aiden, and Mikey and say thank you for listening. We're so proud of you, and And congratulations. congratulations. At 9 p.m. on Saturday, March 22, 1980, Philip Frandler was headed over to his best friend Howard Witkin's house in San Jose. Howard had told Philip that he would meet up with him at a friend's barbecue earlier that day, but Howard never showed up. And that was not like him, so Philip wanted to make sure everything was okay. As Philip walked up to Howard's front door, He saw bloodstains on the walkway in front of the door and what looked like bullet holes in the front door. Philip immediately called 911. When San Jose police officers arrived, they took in the scene. And what they saw were seven shell casings in front of the door, which matched the seven holes that could be seen in the door. When police entered the house, they found Howard's body lying in the hallway, just inside, with a pool of blood beneath him. Further canvassing of the area turned up three additional casings in bushes to the side of the house. It appeared to police that a gunman had likely been hiding there out of sight. The person probably rang the doorbell and waited, and when Howard opened the front door and went onto the steps to see who was there, the gunman first fired from the bushes. The bloodstains on the walkway indicated that Howard had been hit by the first volley of bullets, but it looked like he was able to get into the house and shut the front door. It then appeared that the gunman ran up to the house and fired seven bullets through the door, probably trying to ensure Howard was dead. Based on the condition of the body when Howard was discovered, police believed he was killed late at night on Friday, March 21, 1980, the day before Philip found his body. According to detectives, there was nothing inside the residence that looked like the murderer had been inside the house, and there was no forced entry and no fingerprints. The house was tidy, so it did not look like it was a robbery attempt either. To investigators, it had the appearance of being a contract killing. 
32-year-old Howard Whitkins was born and raised in Northern California, the middle son of a hardworking family that owned their own business. According to an episode of Unusual Suspects entitled Kill Now, Pay Later, at the time of his death, Howard was managing the family's thriving glass and mirror business. Although he had two brothers, it was understood that Howard would take over the company when their father retired. His brother John said that Howard was a humble, fun guy who loved life. People were just drawn to him. In 1966, Howard met the woman who he described to family and friends as the love of his life. Her name was Judy Barnett, and she was from Michigan. She was visiting relatives in California who were friends of Howard's, and after spending an evening at dinner with them, he offered to be her personal tour guide during her stay. He fell head over heels in love. They were married in 1968 and settled in San Jose, where they raised three children, Daniel, Nathan, and Marie. Unfortunately, after nine years of marriage, Howard and Judy seemed to grow tired of each other and decided to separate. The divorce was final in 1978. Judy remarried, and she and her new husband moved back to her home state of Michigan, taking the three children with her. Despite the distance, Howard spent as much time with his kids as he could, spending every summer and holiday with him. This was back at a time when people got divorced and the woman got the kids no matter what, and she took them wherever the heck she wanted. Right. But it sounds like he was trying to be a very early version of the conscious uncoupling. Wasn't that what Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin called it? Um, I don't know, yeah. and I don't ever want to know, but thanks. Okay, you're welcome. <laughs> thanks, TMZ Marie. <laughs> okay, it was Daily Mail, but TMZ okay. covered it too. <laughs> Get my news sources right. <laughs> Conscious uncoupling, divorce, potato, potato. <laughs> the morning after Howard was found, detectives called Judy to inform her of Howard's death. While speaking with her, they questioned her about her relationship with Howard. As the ex-wife, she was a potential suspect, so investigators were looking for any indication of bitterness or friction between the two of them. Judy told police she and Howard maintained a cordial relationship and worked well together to ensure the children were supported. Judy's statement was echoed by Howard's family and friends. The two really did not have any animosity toward each other. Hey, Kath. So my best friend, my very first best friend as a kid was named Judy. She lived on my street. She just was one of these like forces of nature, even as a kid. Like anytime I had to sell candy for school, Judy was with me. And we always sold the most because she wouldn't let me quit until I, I had sold my entire box, even though we went to two different schools. But anyway... <laughs> She just was like a super, she was awesome. But anyway, so I was eight years old and she was nine. And we decided that we wanted to become private investigators. And there was a ton of police officers who lived in our neighborhood when we were kids. We knocked on one of their doors and was like, you need to investigate so-and-so. Okay, we picked a neighbor and, and the officer was like, why? <laughs> I can't even believe we did this. We were like, We've decided we want to be private investigators. We've been surveilling him, and he has children in the trunk of his car. Oh, my God. Yes. Had like, you actually seen him put a child in the car? No. He probably, he probably put, like, a suitcase in the car, and we're like, oh, my God. It I bet he's stealing children. <laughs> like, we've heard about this before. Anyway, so we watched down the block, like, hiding behind a bush while this guy went over, talked to the neighbor, had him open his trunk, show that there were no kids in the trunk of his car. 
And then you lost your Nancy Drew private eye license. Yeah, I was. I just remember being like, "Oh, damn!" And I thought we were going to break a mystery. But can you believe that? I'm sorry, your private eye career was dashed so quickly. <laughs> so quickly. But you're kind of reliving it through the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> Investigators started searching through Howard's house to see if anything looked odd, and they discovered a safe in the corner of Howard's closet. Now, obviously, they didn't have the combination to it, but there was a tag on the safe that had the number of a locksmith, so they called the locksmith to see if he had the combination. He did not. However, he said that he advised Howard and all of his clients to write down the combination on a small slip of paper and keep it in their wallet. They went to the station, they got his wallet out of evidence, Sure enough, he had a little piece of paper on there with a combination. (laughs) That's awesome. And that's how they got into it. That's awesome. So after finding the combination, they were able to open it. And inside was a metal box that had a baggie of cocaine and over $7,000 in cash. Now, I didn't look up how much that was. I was just going to say, you failed. You failed. (laughs) But that's a lot of money now. So I'm guessing that was a heck of a lot of money back then. Yeah. Now, this brought up a different angle because it indicated to detectives Howard might have been dealing drugs. So this now became their number one motive. Howard might have owed money to a supplier or perhaps one of his own clients was trying to rip him off. Family members said they did not know anything about Howard using or possibly selling cocaine, but told investigators that if anyone knew what was going on, it would be Howard's bestie, Philip. When investigators brought Philip back to the station to talk to him, he admitted that he and Howard did buy cocaine to use recreationally from time to time. And they usually bought enough to sell to their friends. How thoughtful. (laughs) With just 150% markup. So even though they were selling to their friends, Philip said they never sold it to people they did not know and certainly were not dealing drugs, although I'm guessing he doesn't understand the actual definition of that. Right, exactly. (laughs) Philip shared that Howard recently decided that his drug days were over and told Philip that he was not going to use cocaine anymore. Police were now reasonably certain that Howard's murder was not related to drugs. Investigators also brought Candace Arias in for questioning. She was Howard's girlfriend of three months and the assistant manager of an upscale card club, which is where they met. Candace said Howard was a really sweet guy and told police she was working at the card club the night he was killed. When they asked if she knew anyone who might want Howard dead, she told detectives there was someone they should speak with. Duke Hardy was a stereo salesman and father of two young girls and for several years was cheating on his wife with Candace. She said Duke kept promising to leave his family for her but never did. She finally ended the relationship and shortly after that she began dating Howard. Not surprisingly, Duke did not like that. Candace told investigators that Duke was a scary guy and scared her many times during their relationship. So anyway, Candace tells them that one time she witnessed Duke beating up a man just because he leaned on his car. After speaking with the other club members, detectives learned Duke was not shy about making his strong dislike for Howard known. Then Candace told them Duke also owned a 22 caliber rifle, the same caliber as the murder weapon. Detectives looked up Duke's rap sheet and he had several felonies, including aggravated assault. He was looking more and more like their prime suspect. And when asked where he was the night of Howard's murder, Duke said he had an alibi. He was at the Garden City Card Club all night. 
Investigators also asked if he would bring in his 22 caliber rifle so it could be sent to the lab for comparison to the bullets recovered from Howard's body. Police went to the card club, of course, to check his alibi. None of the patrons had anything nice to say, and no one recalled him being at the card club on Friday night. Despite this, Duke stuck to his story. He agreed to undergo a polygraph exam, which he passed with no deception at all, and when the lab results came back on his rifle, it was not a ballistics match to the murder weapon. Five days into the investigation, Philip went back to the police station to tell them about a 26-year-old man named Everett Normandy, who told Philip he was at Howard's house on the day police suspected the killing took place. Philip said Everett had lived at Philip's house in a guest room for a couple of months while he saved some money. That is exactly like, um, what's the guy who was in the uh, the O.J. Simpson case? Cato Kalin. Cato Kalin. Yeah. Nobody wants a guest like Cato Kalin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and probably like Cato, Everett kept trying to borrow money. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> OJ probably gave him cash, for God's sake. Everett really did keep trying to borrow money from Philip and Howard, but they refused. And when they did, he flipped out. So Philip thought Everett could be the killer because of his reaction when Howard had told him that he would not give him any more money. Detectives brought Everett in for questioning. He told police Philip was not telling the truth. He said he did not see Howard that night because he was at a party in Berkeley, which is about 45 minutes away from where Howard lived. Detectives called the people who Everett said he was with at the party that night, and they all verified his alibi. However, detectives suspected that he was not telling the whole truth, so they kept questioning him and pushing him and interrogating him even more. And pretty quickly, the whole story came out. Everett admitted that his friends in Berkeley were covering for him when they told investigators he was with them that night. By the way, I get that people want to be loyal to their friends, but don't be an alibi for a crime. If you don't want to talk to the police officers, just say, I'm not talking. Which is what you should say anyway. Just like, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, like zip your lip, but don't lie. Right. Because there are real victims here. You know, like, just don't lie. And that after school special has been brought to you by... <laughs> Seriously. The more you know. <laughs> he was lying to detectives. Mm -hmm. Why? Why would you go to Howard's house back in the 80s? Um, to buy cocaine. And that's why he was there. Well, see, like, <laughs> just say that. They care about bigger things than cocaine. So Everett lied to the police. Now he's coming clean and said that when he went to Howard's house around 7 o'clock that night, Howard told him that he was no longer selling cocaine. Detectives asked him to take a polygraph, which he agreed to do, and he passed. The next morning, detectives received a call from Michigan State Police asking if they were investigating any recent unsolved shootings. San Jose Police told the officer who called that they just so happened to be working on one that was almost a week old. In response, the Michigan State Police officer said he had just spoken with someone who could potentially blow the case wide open. A man named Kevin McCarthy the general manager of the Onion Crock Restaurant. Not to be confused with the House right. Minority Leader with the same name. <laughs> Not that Kevin McCarthy. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, Kevin McCarthy, the general manager of the Onion Crock Restaurant, reached out to police, so the Michigan police, after one of his former employees told him an interesting story about his recent trip to California. 
The man's name was Gary Oliver, and he came into the restaurant after being in California, tanned and flashing cash. That's what happens when I go there, too. (laughs) And that's what happens when Kathy goes there. (laughs) So when McCarthy asked Oliver if he enjoyed his vacation, Oliver told him he was actually doing a job for someone. Oliver was being kind of squirrely, and when McCarthy asked for more details about the job, Oliver told him he was actually doing a job for someone. He said he was hired to take care of someone, wink, wink, for $10,000. Oliver said he drove out to California with his high school friend, Andrew Granger, but did not tell McCarthy who hired him. McCarthy hears this information and goes to the Michigan State Police. So San Jose detectives immediately flew to Michigan with a warrant and arrested Gary Oliver. They took him to a Michigan police station where Oliver, who was on probation for breaking and entering, promptly asked for an attorney. Detectives left him there and went to speak with the alleged accomplice, Andrew Granger. Granger had no criminal record and was happy to talk. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing how that changes your perspective. Exactly. Granger told detectives Oliver approached him and said a man named Mr. Big asked him to kill someone. Granger then asked how much he was being paid. Oliver said he was getting $5,000 and he would give Granger half, and Granger agreed. So Oliver and Granger left Michigan on Tuesday, March 18, 1980. They planned to take turns driving so they could drive straight through from Michigan to San Jose, and they arrived two days later. They spent a few hours doing reconnaissance at the victim, Howard Whitkin's house, stopped to get food, and when they got back to the car, the engine would not start. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, these are the Keystone criminals. Absolutely. Yeah. So they're stranded in a parking lot, and they happen to meet this guy named Tom Masiolik. So he's in this parking lot. I I feel like it was the parking lot of a restaurant, but I could totally be making that up. So he's there with his girlfriend, Heather. Anyway, so Masiolik sees these two guys stranded, and he happens to be a mechanic. And he's like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, I don't know. My car won't start. These two non-mechanics from Michigan. So I'm sure they probably had these lovely, nice Michigan accents. And Tom Masiolik and his girlfriend just immediately trusted them. So what does he do? He says, hey, no problem. You could stay at my apartment tonight. (laughs) That, to me, is such, like, 70s culture that you hear about. Totally. They probably had shag carpeting. Even though it was 1980. Well, keep it the 80s or 70s, especially outside of Southern California. The 70s was a horrible decade for a number of reasons. But, yes. But I think that's probably one of them. Exactly. Like, yes, exactly. Serial killers, shag carpets, like, inviting strangers to stay the night at your house. Who might kill you. Right. Exactly. So, while Oliver and Granger were at this guy's apartment... They told him and his girlfriend what their plans were, you know, to kill this guy. I think they'd also been partaking in quite a bit of herbal refreshment. I would assume that's the case, but (laughs) I'm just reading between the lines. I know. Me too. And you're just making stuff up. So whatever. Anyway, (laughs) here we go. My making stuff up is you're reading between the lines. (laughs) One sounds far more sophisticated than the other. (laughs) So anyway, since Oliver and Grager no longer had their car, they asked Masiolik to drive them to Howard's house for the murder that they told him about, and they offered him $1,000. So he agrees, he takes them, and he parks down the street, and he also agrees to drive them home. So 10 p.m., Friday night, March 21st, 1980, the three went to Howard's house. 
So Granger tells police, because remember, this whole thing came out in the interview, that he and Masiolik stay in the car while Oliver went to Howard's house and killed him. Unfortunately, Oliver never told Granger who Mr. Big was. So detectives still did not know who paid them to kill Howard Whitkin. The only person who knew was Oliver, and he was not talking. Because the San Jose detectives were borrowing the police interrogation room in Michigan, they did not know how thin the walls were. Granger and Oliver were in rooms right next to each other, and apparently Oliver overheard Granger telling detectives his version of what happened in California. <laughs> Can you imagine? No. You totally have like a glass to the wall and you're like, what? Anyway, so Oliver decides, hey, Granger's implicating me. I'm going to undo this. So rather than waiting for an attorney, Oliver goes, hey, uh, yo, detectives, I'm ready to talk. And he tells them his version, which was the exact same story as Granger's, with one exception, of course. He tells the San Jose police that he was the one who stayed in the car with Masiolik and Granger did the shooting. Big difference. Exactly. In the Unusual Suspects episode referenced earlier, Oliver told detectives he had not been paid yet, but his boss, Mr. Big, promised to pay him in installments, $500 a week for the next five months. Detectives were very, very amused that not only did Oliver commit the murder without being paid up front in cash, which I think with hitmen, it's standard. Right. Part of their union rules. Exactly. But he was also on an installment plan to get the money. I mean, can you imagine Oliver's like, hey, I didn't get my money. Lawsuit for breach of contract. (laughs) (laughs) So Oliver, though, was also willing to give up Mr. Big's identity. He told detectives it was his boss at the restaurant who paid him to do it. Now, remember the restaurant where Oliver used to work in Michigan was the Onion Crock. Kevin McCarthy was the manager, and he was the same person who went to police to tell them what they thought Oliver might have done. But it was not McCarthy who was the person who paid him. It was actually the owner of the restaurant, a man named Robert Singer. Investigators looked into Singer's background and learned the restaurant was having significant financial difficulties. They also discovered he was married to a woman named Judy, who just happened to be Howard Witkin's ex-wife and the mother of his three children. Singer was arrested and immediately asked for a lawyer. As detectives looked further into Singer's finances, they saw he had been trying to get a $300,000 loan to help him save the restaurant and was desperate for cash. Without that money, the restaurant would fail, and detectives theorized that he saw Howard as his way out. With Howard dead, the children would inherit everything. And since the children were all minors, he and Judy would be trustees of their inheritance until they turned 18. When detectives told Judy her husband was arrested for murdering her ex-husband, she was stunned and told police she did not believe Singer would do something like that. She also said she did not believe he was having financial problems and insisted that if that were true, her husband would have told her. To ensure her husband had the best defense possible, Judy hired a high-powered Los Angeles defense attorney named William C. Melcher. In July 1980, Santa Clara County prosecutors, who are responsible for prosecuting murders in San Jose, 
brought charges against Gary Oliver, Andrew Granger, and Robert Singer for murder. Thomas Masiolik was charged as an accessory to murder. Initially, all four defendants were part of the same matter, but the Superior Court severed Oliver and Masiolik into a separate case. Those two, Oliver and Masiolik, pleaded guilty to lesser offenses in exchange for their testimony. Trial began for the high school friend Granger (laughs) and Mr. Big Singer in 1981. Granger was convicted of murder. However, in the case of Singer, the jury deadlocked, resulting in a mistrial. And what do we know about mistrials, Cass, since you're a lawyer now? They're always retried. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Prosecutors again filed murder charges against Robert Singer and his retrial began in March of 1982. During the trial, the jury was told Howard Whitkin was shot to death on the evening of March 21, 1980 at his home in San Jose. Evidence from the crime scene showed that he was struck nine times in a hail of gunfire at his front door. Bullet holes through the door suggested he was first shot outside, retreated behind the door, and then was hit by more gunfire. An alert neighbor noticed two people in a faded gold 1970s model car with an out-of-state license plate in the neighborhood. That is when neighbors paid attention to what was going on in the neighborhood. 100%. She wrote the license plate number down. Yeah, exactly. People answered their front doors. (laughs) And their phones. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Ah, the good old days. (laughs) Richard Powell, a security guard at the mall where Singer's Onion Crock restaurant was located, testified that in late January or early February 1980, Singer was asking him if he knew someone who did contracts, explaining that his ex-wife was soaking him for money and that he would like to kill her. Powell said Singer seemed serious, asking again a couple of weeks later and apparently wanted the contract executed in California. Powell told Singer he would not look for someone to carry out this contract. Kevin McCarthy testified that he worked for Singer since the opening of the restaurant and did all of the hiring and firing. He said that in late February to early March 1980, Singer asked him where he could find a hitman, someone who could waste another person. McCarthy did not know what to say, but McCarthy said he did not turn Singer down. A couple of days later, Singer asked McCarthy to accompany him to a local nightclub where McCarthy knew the manager. Singer told McCarthy to ask the manager where they could get a hitman, and McCarthy agreed, but the club manager told him he did not know, and Singer and McCarthy left. It sounds like people are used to getting asked this question a lot. <laughs> I've like, never been asked the question. like everybody has to pretend. Exactly. You know? A day or two later, Singer again began pressuring him to get a hitman. Singer threw out a dollar amount, as much as $10,000 to $25,000, and McCarthy said he was concerned for his job, so he was trying to humor Singer, who appeared to be serious about this. McCarthy told him he would take a wild chance and make a phone call and tried to call a friend in Detroit who was not a hitman, but could not reach him. I'm guessing he was a singer he was. He's like, I'd like to phone a friend. (laughs) (laughs) He told Singer on a later occasion that he went back to the Aladdin to check again, but in fact, he did not go to the club for that reason. I'm guessing the reason. You know, Kevin's like, you know, I I really like my job and I'm so tired of hiring hitmen for my boss. (laughs) Exactly. It's exhausting. (laughs) It's exhausting. One of the restaurant staff members hired by McCarthy was Gary Oliver, who started as a busboy and quickly worked his way up to cook. 
Singer kept telling McCarthy every couple of days that he needed to get that problem solved and seemed obsessed with the idea. Eventually, though, Singer quit bringing it up. Then, on returning to work after St. Patrick's Day 1980, McCarthy was surprised to learn from Singer that he personally fired Oliver. This was odd because McCarthy was usually the one who did that stuff. That same month, sometime before Singer and his wife were to leave on their planned trip to California, McCarthy overheard Singer talking on the phone to somebody about buying a low-priced car. So here's the thing. Singer's telling him, hey, my wife and I are going to California. He then actually goes to California, and it happens to be after the death of Judy's former husband, Howard Witkin. And it pretty much coincides with it, though. Exactly. While they were gone, McCarthy saw Oliver at the restaurant. Oliver was tanned, had money, had nice clothes, went to California where his car blew up and had to be deserted. (laughs) So this is all in the court testimony. Singer then telephoned from California and, in the course of the conversation, said to McCarthy, that problem was taken care of. This is when, according to McCarthy's testimony, he went to the Michigan State Police. Finally! Yeah, by the way, it was on April Fool's Day, 1980. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at hero.co. Oliver, who did not testify at Singer's first trial, testified at the second. Midway through his trial two years prior, Oliver entered a plea to solicitation of murder with a maximum sentence of six years expected, Uh so it wasn't guaranteed, Uh and agreed to testify at Singer's retrial. At the retrial, Oliver recounted that Singer asked him in March if he would be interested in making $10,000 for killing someone for him. Singer kept pestering Oliver, who refused at first, and Singer eventually gave Oliver a slip of paper with Howard Witkin's name and address on it. It's like this guy, Singer, watched too many movies. Like the movie where somebody writes something on a piece of paper, puts it face down, and then slides it across the table at Exactly. You. <laughs> it's like the mob movies. Exactly. Oliver testified that Singer gave them the money that they used to buy a shotgun for $300 and a 1970 or 1971 gold Chevrolet Malibu for $450. Oliver said he and Granger drove to California with the newly purchased shotgun 
and a 22 caliber rifle Granger brought with him. So really quickly, if they hadn't brought the rifle, then Howard probably would have still been alive because when they got the gun, they didn't get bullets for it. These guys are like the Keystone murderers. Exactly. Yeah. But the reason they didn't get the bullets is that they thought, you know, like when you buy a gun, even back then you were registered. Right. They thought that the same thing happened with the ammo. So, so they're like, we're getting the gun, but no ammo. Oh! Exactly. And then they were afraid to purchase it. But Granger, who brought the rifle with him, just coincidentally had it, and it actually had ammo. That was the plan B. That Got was it. plan B. That was the plan B. They reached San Jose on Thursday, March 20th, and drove around Whitkin's home to stake it out that night. The car broke down the next day, and Oliver told Granger to make a long-distance call to Mr. Big. A.K.A. Singer. Exactly. For more money. When Singer asked if they took care of the problem, Granger told him not yet, and Singer told them they would not get any additional money until the job was done and hung up on them. Which at this point was nothing. They had no money at this point. Exactly, because everything they'd been given, they had to spend on their equipment. Exactly. Again, according to Oliver's testimony, Masiolik, who, as you'll recall, is the mechanic who came across these... Right, invited two strange killers to live with him and his girlfriend for a night. Exactly, <laughs> right. and, and smoke some weed and maybe have some fun. That's our own personal as we poetic tend to license. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. He gave them a ride to the victim Howard Witkin's house that night of the murder, mm -hmm. and they dropped Granger off near the house and then went down the street and parked. Granger returned, saying he thought he killed Howard and told them he rang the doorbell shooting Whitkin when he emerged, and then when Whitkin went back in the house and slammed the door shut, he shot through the door, but then tried the door so he could double check, but the door was locked. Mm -hmm. Oliver further testified that the next morning, he and Granger called Singer from a phone booth. Remember those? Yes, exactly. And if you don't? Ask your parents. Ask your parents. Ask your parents. Singer asked Oliver if he did it, and Oliver said he thought so. Really, I don't think they're using their words. So right. Nobody knows what they're talking about. <laughs> Granger asked for money to get home, and Singer sent a Western Union moneygram the next day. At trial, Western Union verified that a transfer from Singer to Granger was sent. Singer called Oliver from California to congratulate him and said he would take care of, which at trial Oliver said he took to mean pay him, mm -hmm. when Singer got back to Michigan. Singer thereafter sent Oliver $500 a week, part of which Oliver gave to Granger. So he was actually keeping up his end of the bargain, which I got to tell you, with a contract killer, I think I would too. Exactly, exactly. In this second trial against Singer, Granger did not testify live. So, Kath, here's the interesting thing. Granger did testify in Singer's first trial, the one that was a mistrial. But he didn't testify in the second trial because at the time... He had his own conviction on appeal. And so he just took the fifth. Because he had not taken the fifth in Singer's first trial and in fact testified, what they did was they took Granger's testimony from the first trial and it was read into the record at the second trial. So he had a right not to appear at the second trial in preservation of his Fifth Amendment rights on appeal. But the trial court was like, yo, bro. Because you testified initially at the first trial, we're just going to read your testimony into the record. Thank you very kindly. I'm really surprised that the trial court isn't more formal when it speaks. <laughs> you know, Yo, bro. Yeah, you know how judges were in the 80s. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I don't know why you would. <laughs> So 
So as you can imagine, as they read Granger's testimony back into the record, it's very consistent with what he initially told the San Jose police while he was in that very poorly insulated Michigan <laughs> thin wall police office. Exactly. <laughs> interrogation room. So he says, hey, look, everything's the same, essentially, except I was in the car with Masiola. Oliver was the one who did the shooting. And that was read into the record during Singer's second trial. According to Granger's testimony, Oliver knew Mr. Big, but Granger, his high school buddy, did not. Right. And so it turns out to be Singer, you know, the guy who owns the restaurant, blah, 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 blah. So after a three-month trial, Singer was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In 1984, after three years in prison, he receives an anonymous letter purporting to show an affair between the attorney he used for both trials, William Melcher, and his wife, Judy. So he's been in prison like three years and he gets this, like, what the heck is this about, right? According to an LA Times article, on December 14th, 1990, by journalist Philip Hager, a legal secretary at Milcher's office named Linda Bennett found a series of letters while she was working for Melcher that revealed this affair between Judy and the lawyer. Wow. Yeah, exactly. He kept them? He's uh, a lawyer. He should know better than anyone that you don't keep that. Yeah, but here's the deal. Like, So she's a secretary there or some administrative assistant. She finds these letters. She copies them. Of course. And then puts the originals back where she got them. Smart woman. Or very calculating and treacherous. I'm going to go smart. <laughs> potato, yeah, potato. Exactly, exactly. So can you imagine Singer? He's like sitting in jail for three years and he gets a copy. What she sent him was a letter basically saying, hey, by the way, your wife had an affair with your lawyer and here's a copy of a missive. And it's written supposedly by Judy. So he hires a lawyer and he does a writ of habeas corpus. And the Court of Appeal says, whoa, this is kind of big information. Hey, trial court, like the judge who actually heard the matter, you need to do a hearing, an evidentiary hearing on this. So an evidentiary hearing was ordered and held. So Bennett, the secretary, testifies at the hearing that she found the letters in a file drawer, made copies, took copies of them home, and also showed them to others in Melcher's office and to her friend, attorney Vincent Bugliosi. He sort of like made his name by being the district attorney who prosecuted Charles Manson and then wrote a book about it. The famous book, Helter Skelter. Right. Bugliosi and Melcher actually were colleagues slash friends, kind of. So these letters from Judy to the attorney Melcher revealed a sexual relationship. The letters referred to Melcher as the cowboy and referred to his sharp spurs and also... <laughs> She referred to herself as the princess. Mm -hmm, Petunia, mm -hmm. that's okay. Exactly. <laughs> I found some of the letter. <laughs> Prepare yourselves. You might want to pull over if you're in the car. <laughs> you might vomit in your mouth, but exactly. go ahead. This is from Judy to Melcher. She said, my darling, as our animal friends might say, you make my quill quiver, hump hatch, wings wiggle, tail tingle, beak blister, Hindquarters heat. <laughs> Say that again. What? 
hindquarters heat, mm. antennas active, pouch puff. <laughs> I'm, I'm not really sure. Is that a sex letter? I feel like she was like reading too many Ranger Rick magazines. <laughs> so at the hearing, Judy admits she had an affair with Melcher as he commuted to trial in San Jose from Los Angeles. San Jose being in Northern California. Correct. Yes. Thank you. And that they had an understanding that the affair would end when the case was over. Do you think she got like a reduced rate? That's a really damn good question. Because why else would she do it? Because people can't pay for lawyers on an hourly basis out of pocket. And she didn't have Howard's money. That is a, Kathy, that is an excellent question. So anyway, now the attorney's in hot water and he's like, oh my goodness, this is a huge deal. Like he sees like just the force of shame and the trial court and the state bar of California. And his future passed before his eyes. Oh my God, totally. So he, Melcher, the attorney, denies the affair. He says he became impotent and uninterested in sex after a 1978 vasectomy. He had his wife testify, and she supported this claim. Of course she supported the claim. I know, but you know what, Kath? Like, when I was actually reading the Court of Appeal opinion, what was awful to me was the trial. She testifies, and she says, you know, whatever. Like, he's been impotent since 1978. We haven't had sex. But she spills her heart out, and the trial judge believed that she was telling the truth. That the wife was telling the truth? Correct. The trial judge believed that she was telling the truth and that she was a credible witness. However, they also had medical testimony admitted showing that he was treated by a doctor for lesions on his situation and for venereal disease. <gasps> so can After his 1978 impotent vasectomy? Correct. So can you imagine being the wife? No. And the trial court actually went out of its way to say how credible she was. Which means she knew nothing. Knew nothing. That's sad. Like that. Terrible. I always feel sorry for the wife like, in that situation. When I read that, I, I was like, oh, that's awful. I would rather hear she was a treacherous liar. You know so, what I mean? Do you think he was lying to her about being impotent? 100%. My impression from the writing in the Court of Appeal opinion was that the trial court felt that she was a victim of Melcher's lies. That she truly believed what she was saying. Correct. So here's the reason the Court of Appeal forced the trial court to have a evidentiary hearing. Every defendant has a Sixth Amendment right to competent counsel, and that includes an attorney who has no conflicts of interest. And if you're the defendant in a matter who is accused of killing your wife's ex-husband, then certainly there is the appearance of impropriety at the very least Perhaps your wife was involved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in this hearing, the judge said, yes, there's a conflict, but it wasn't enough evidence to show that you had ineffective representation. And the attorney filed an appeal on that decision. And As the court, he should have. Right. And the Court of Appeal was like, nay, 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 nay. Not going to happen. <laughs> so here we are, 1990, 10 years after the murder. And in the first ruling of its kind, the California Court of Appeal held that. An on-again, off-again affair between Melcher, the attorney, and Judy during the trial created a conflict of interest violating Singer's right to effective counsel, and the Court of Appeal granted him a new trial. And they basically said, we don't have any precedent for this. This is really new. 
And what the courts of appeal do is they read case law and they try to find things that are factually similar. They said, hey, we don't have one of those. However, in 1985, there was another appellate case where we overturned a conviction because the prosecutor and the defense attorney were dating during trial. And they said, no, you can't do this. Everybody gets to have an attorney aggressively defend them and someone whose duty of loyalty is not brought into question. Exactly. So in Singer's case, the conflict was all on the defense end, right? His own attorney and his wife. The Court of Appeal also stated that they were required by the Business and Professions Code to report their reversal to the State Bar of California. Now, the BNP Code is what regulates California attorneys. And so I am sure the State Bar did something with this gentleman. However, because he's currently dead, I couldn't find any record of it. So here we are, Robert Singer, who Uh has been serving prison time for the murder of Howard Witkin, is once again going to trial in San Jose, California. You know what just popped into my brain? Uh, It could be a number of things. (laughs) A long forgotten memory of the Winchester Mystery House. Oh, that we talked about in the intro. Exactly. (laughs) Well, that took you a while to remember. I know. I don't even know why it just popped into my head. But anyway, so when my sister Helen used to come out, she would come out and visit every summer. And Shout out to Helen. (laughs) (laughs) And we would get in my hideous safari van and we would chuck all our kids in and we would do a chick trip, right? We wanted to go to the Winchester Mystery House. We were actually going to San Francisco. I had four kids at the time, and I believe she just had one kid. And so we stop at the Winchester Mystery House, and <laughs> my nephew Aiden, he was a really rambunctious child. And that is a He's euphemism. He's still a really rambunctious child. <laughs> and I remember going through, I just popped this, oh my God, this memory just popped into my brain. So we are taking a tour of the Winchester Mystery House. I don't even have that much memory of the house itself. I remember liking it, but my sister and Aiden were kicked out of the tour. (laughs) That sounds about right. (laughs) Aiden kept trying to like run under those like velvet ropes they have out. And the kid is a total spaz. And so he was like talking and yelling. And finally the lady was like, can you please leave? (laughs) That was the same trip that because Helen and I were super cheap. We stayed in a no-tell motel in San Francisco, and (laughs) we found out we had too many people to share a room, so I made my two oldest kids, who were so young at the time, I made them, like, duck below the level of the registration window and run down the hall at the motel and wait for us, (laughs) so... So the person wouldn't know how many people we checked into a room. Teaching them a life of crime from an early age. Honest to God. <laughs> honest to God. Yeah. So so Helen and I got to get only one motel room with our five children. Nice. And yeah, exactly. And where did the kids sleep? On the floor. <laughs> oh, my God. It probably had shag carpeting. It probably did. But they had good immune systems. So, hey. Well, they you know, do now. I, I'm sure I put a jacket under their head and said, Mama loves you. <laughs> Okay, so back to the story. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Robert Singer has now been given a chance at another retrial because of his ineffective counsel. Mm -hmm. And instead of going to trial again, he makes a deal for a lighter sentence. Which surprised everybody. It did. So up until now, detectives said this was a big deal because he had never, ever, ever admitted to any participation. Exactly. Exactly. But he told them he would plead guilty to murder Mm -hmm. in exchange for a reduced sentence of 25 years to life. What was he going to give in return? 
he was going to divulge the real mastermind behind Howard's murder, his wife, Judy. According to Singer, Judy wanted Howard dead for two reasons. The biggest motivation, of course, was money, and Howard was from a wealthy family, and he himself was worth over a million dollars. But I see here you didn't do the math. Kathy loves to do the math on what a million dollars in 1980 would have been in today's dollars. I did do the math. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, <laughs> you what's should the, be. What's the answer? I'm not telling you. <laughs> you're, you're such a liar. You didn't do the math. Continue. You, you'll never know, will you? <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> So the other reason that Judy wanted Howard dead was because he recently filed for full custody of his three children, and Judy told Singer that she would not stand for that. Singer said that Judy asserted tremendous pressure for him to kill Howard, and when Singer resisted, she told him that she would leave him. And this was actually the final push that Singer needed to actually find his hitman. He said that when he moved to Michigan with Judy a couple of years prior, he didn't know anyone other than Judy... And then he started the restaurant, and then he was having financial problems, and if she left him, he wouldn't know anybody, and it just scared him and made him sad. Detectives described Singer as a weak-willed individual. After Singer shared this information, they set up a phone call between him and Judy so he could accuse her of the murder on the phone and police would hear her response. What the police did not take into account was that Judy knew if a prisoner was serving life in prison, they could only make phone calls if someone was paying for it. Her first question when Singer called was, who was paying for this call? Singer was trying to tell her someone knew she was involved in Howard's murder, but she kept asking who was paying for the call. After doing this several times without getting a response, she hung up on him. To detectives, the fact that Judy did not deny involvement told them a lot. Judy, you sophisticated little beep. (laughs) (laughs) On the Unusual Suspects episode... Howard and Judy's daughter, Marie, said she saw through her mother's lies from the very beginning. In 1986, six years after her father was murdered, Marie was 19, estranged from her mother, and living with her boyfriend. She told her boyfriend about her dad being murdered and that she thought her mom was behind it. He was skeptical, so Marie tried to figure out a way to try to prove it. She had her boyfriend call her mother and tell Judy that he knew what she did. And remember, in 1986, there was no caller ID, so she had no way of knowing who was calling. That's very true. When the boyfriend called and told Judy he knew what she did and that he was going to call the cops, rather than deny it and hang up, Judy asked how much money it would take to shut him up. With Singer's testimony and the incriminating phone call from Maria's boyfriend, Judy was arrested in Michigan and extradited to California to stand trial for murder. After a 10-week trial, on November 2, 1994, Judith Barnett Singer was found guilty of first-degree murder. Six days later, she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, her husband, Robert Singer was released from prison in 2004. In November of 2018, on his way out of office, California Governor Jerry Brown commuted Judy's life sentence to 27 years to life. Now, Kath, I also read that he commuted, I want to say, 150 other sentences. Well, it's like any elected official, the president, governors, what have you, at the end of their term, and Governor Brown at the time was term limited, he couldn't run anymore for the office, 
they all just go through and do a sweeping commuting of sentences. Totally. Parole was granted in June 2019 for Judy, despite the fact that she denied to the parole board that she had anything to do with Howard's murder after she was asked point blank if she wanted him killed. Now, Kath, what's interesting is this parole board consisted of two people. I don't know what it normally consists of, frankly, but for Judy, there were two people present at the hearing. One of the parole board members did not speak to the press, as far as I could tell, and the other parole board member did. And when you go in for a parole hearing, they want to hear that you are contrite. They want to hear that you acknowledge the crime and your participation and that you're contrite. Because they start from the premise, always, that the conviction is accurate. They're not there to retry the facts. But Judy did not admit her participation. Right. That she was not contrite at all. Exactly. According to an article in the Mercury News by Catherine Ellison, on June 4th, 2019, Judy was quoted as having said to the parole board that she acted like Psycho Barbie. She did not take responsibility for her part in the murder. Basically, what she said was her ex-husband, the victim, wanted to take their three children on a houseboat that summer. She did not believe it was safe. So she turns to her current husband, Robert Singer, and starts complaining about it, saying it wasn't safe. And by the way, the victim, Howard Whitkin, had recently petitioned the court for full custody, supposedly, of the children, right? She is complaining about this to her husband, Robert Singer, and she is, according to her own words, like basically having a fit and acting like Psycho Barbie and threatening to leave him. Now, that doesn't make a great deal of sense to me, but it doesn't matter. However, at this time, she's 71 years old. She has lupus and many other maladies. She's in a wheelchair. And they basically go, look, she's not a threat to society. We're letting her go. So as a condition of her release, she was not allowed to have any contact with the victim's family, including their two living children. One child had already died. According to the 2019 Mercury News article by Catherine Ellison, Deputy District Attorney Aaron West attended the parole hearing. She said Barnett's sentence should never have been commuted and she shouldn't have been released. This was a horrible, heinous murder that sucked victims into its web for 20 years. And she, Judy Barnett, is denying any culpability for the planning and execution of the murder of the father of her children. On the day Barnett was released, their daughter Marie said, my father doesn't have a life and she should not be having a life either. Part of me really wanted to stand at that prison gate and say, hey, now that it's you and me face to face and nobody around but you and me and the man upstairs, tell me to my face. For once, don't lie and say what you did, and I'm just going to walk away. I want her to admit it to my face. We want to thank you so much for listening. We really have a fun time recording this podcast, and the minute we don't, we're going to stop. (laughs) (laughs) But we also appreciate all the messages we're getting from listeners who tell us how much they like it and how much it reminds them of how they are with their friends. Exactly. So please just share this with your friends, and that helps us out a lot. Absolutely. And if you're not following us on Facebook or Instagram, we are at Killer Destinations Podcast on both of them.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.